Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This episode, we talked about software licensing, open source, and what it means, how it's changing, what the market is. Um, and it's not just open source, it's licensing in general. Uh, and at the end of it, we really got to, we didn't care that the utility and the serviceability and operability of the products, of how they're gonna be used and whether or not you can rely on them. In short, the supply chain of the software was much more important than the licenses of the software. Fascinating conversation, and I know you will enjoy understanding how we got to that conclusion. So let me let me launch us into the licensing topic, and then I'm happy to yield the floor as always. Um, because this could go in a couple of different directions. In, in the past, uh, we've talked about data and IP and right to repair, and I, I wasn't expecting this to go there. Um, what I was more thinking for licensing are the changing landscape we have with open source licensing, um, which I don't feel like people are as excited about as they used to be. Um, the limitations on copyrights and and what you can actually copy, um, and then you know different types of commercial licensing that you know are enabling you know be interesting actually to talk through innovation or changes on it. Um, but we've been moving a lot of our licensing conversations into service, where you don't you don't actually convey license um, or even know what's going on behind the scenes. So it feels like a shifting landscape and people's priorities have changed compared to even five years ago. But do people agree with that statement? And I think open source is still sharing. out there. Um, it's It seems to be less of a business model now, which I think is the right thing. Open source should not be a business model. O open source should be about fair use and fair access, which by themselves should be <laughs> subtopics uh, of conversation as well, in my opinion. Um, from what I've seen, open source is still a great approach for, for building a user base. Um, but you need to have a hybrid business model where you produce an open source product and have a an additional way of monetizing it. I'm thinking about GitLab, especially since they're in the news at the moment. But um, there's a degree here where you know GitLab is predominantly an open source product. I I don't see a lot of people at the moment spending a lot of time talking about GitLab as an open source thing. And so I. You know, when I when I think about that, it's you know five years ago it was a big deal. Now I'm not seeing a lot of people worried about it. Um, not part of what I saw in the market. Um, you know, they're a service predominantly and a product. Yeah. Um, again, the, the, this is where the hybrid monetization part comes in as well. Um, you still have the. the you can still install the open source GitLab locally if you're a startup. Uh, but as you ramp up and as the, the maintenance cost of your own GitLab instance 
increases, uh, then they, they, they make it easy to migrate your on-prem to, to the, the SaaS version. And that is how they're benefiting from, from open source, in my opinion. Interesting. We actually started, we, we just migrated um, and we saw, we didn't even worry about the on-premises or the self-managed the way I would describe it because nothing would be on-premises. Um, the self-managed component for it. Uh, it's an option, you know, it's, it's an option, but I suspect we'd continue to pay licenses um, from that perspective. You also have other products like Kong, for example, who yeah. have an open source platform uh, and then a parallel closed source one with, with basically uh, gated features that, um, that become available as modules mm. uh, once you get your licensed uh, version. Yeah, I, is, are you describing like a, a a slow roll to open? Like it's like it's open, but it takes two or three years to become open as a basically it's a proprietary license protection strategy. I th I think it's more about open to to get the, the this is about I think about uh, getting users comfortable with 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 using the open source version, let's say 90%. And then once users need the extra feature, that extra 10%, that's where the licensing tends to come in. Um, and from a business perspective, yeah. I can see it making sense because when, when you are a software supplier, it, it's not the, the, small, the small business users that, that give you the money. It's the, it's the handful of, of large business users. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to get them to try your product by requiring a licensing cost from, from the beginning. You get them to try your, your open source product, let them become comfortable with it. And if they grow, then they, 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 they will want to, they will have the means to pay for your license in, in the first place, but they will also want the features that, that are locked behind the license. It, it, so, so it kind my, of feels like yeah. I'm describing a, like a, a, a bait and switch kind of thing. But so, so in my experience, <laughs> in 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 my experience with with large enterprises, um, the licensing model, the 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 you know there is no large corporation that can't go to a software supplier and say, you know, I want a three month demo of your of your product. You know, let's stand it up and let's test it. So. I mean, whether it's open source or not, I, I mean, they have the clout to sort of do that. Um, but the the real issue comes with, with those large organizations comes down to support and the support in both, um, uh, you know, the deployment and consulting around the use of the product, but also in the more traditional version of support. When something breaks, you know, they, you know, they need a phone number or an email address to send to send a bug report to, um, on the SLA, uh, and 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 an SLA around that, um, you can't do that in open source, right? It's 
I mean, if you're using a strictly open source version of a product, you're 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 on your own for support. And big enterprises don't like that. That's that's too that's too high a risk of that's too high of a risk position for them to take. Unless the big enterprise has the in-house dev capacity to fix it themselves. You know, that that was that never. was a I've never seen a big enterprise that can really do that well. Right. There, I mean, there's lots of companies that sort of started down that model. And it's always, in my experience, it always seems to be a trail of tears. Um, because you know, you're not going to get sort of A-class developers who are required to do that. Um, who live and live, eat, and breathe that product to stay at a bank, right? And and the ones that do end up just forking the product or or, or creating their own version and, and monetizing it. Yeah, it's just. I mean, I mean, I mean. I'll 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 hold up Red Hat as the as the as the example of this, right? You know, you know. Linux is free and open source, but no, but 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 every enterprise runs RHEL, right? They Kubernetes work very hard to make, make. They make they work very hard to maintain that lock too, though. Right. Well, and Kubernetes is another one. Kubernetes, you know, started out as a fantastic bit of open source stuff, and there was a lot of. I mean, I went to all a lot of those meetups. There was a lot of a lot of hand holding, a lot of singing songs, and it was all great. The reality of it is, is there's, I mean, there's been a few enterprises that have tried to go down the, we're just going to take the open source Kubernetes and run that. I've yet to see one of those be successful. I don't know if anybody else has, right? I haven't either. No. I, I, and right, right now, I'm not even seeing them using the same vendor across all of the Kubernetes uh, locations yeah. that they're doing. No, it's, 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 it's Wild West time for that kind of stuff still. But I, I don't see anybody. I don't see anybody seriously taking, you know, you know, a open source version of Kubernetes and deploying that. I, it's interesting. So I, I, let's, I would like to drill in on that just a little bit because I, I find it sort of fascinating that that means that there's a relatively few Kubernetes um, distros that are enterprise considered enterprise acceptable. Um, but at the same time, I don't think they're variant. They're very variant from the open source. No, it's piece either. Support. Again, it's. I mean, if I mean, if I was, if I was VMware or I was Red Hat, I would do my absolute best at this point in the market to keep to to track, you know, the open source version of Kubernetes as as best I can. Right, because that's that's frankly where the action is. So that's where the development, that's where the innovation is coming from. Right, what I'm offering my customers is a supported version of that. I, I consider the open source version of Kubernetes to be the reference implementation. It's not something that you're supposed to actually use, but it is what every other Kubernetes distribution should be based on, just like OpenJDK. Do you, do you see the because core to me seems like it's sort of chugging along and and has a set of maintainers, but it's not particularly controversial. Feels like the the, the landscape, which is um, exploded, um, is is becoming is is 
a different story though? Like, is there a core set of, of projects that everybody's implementing around, around Kubernetes that are basically becoming a required set? No. No? No? You don't, no? Like no. even Istio or Istio is not even in CNCF, no, I mean, right? I, you know, I, I'm, I haven't been able to participate in this in a long time. So I'm coming in a little cold. Great to see everyone. Um, sorry, I've got the boys home today. They're recovering. But um, I guess the, the, the question that I don't hear being asked is why? So why are enterprises not adopting you know core kubernetes or why kind of don to your your comment why are they using different versions of kubernetes and different purposes and different sources i don't see that coming up in conversation here and i think that would be very telling i have my own views on it um i mean in a nutshell kubernetes is hard and i think the ball has moved too that enterprises are realizing that you know what it's we got to get out of this build everything model and figure out how to buy things um we can't be experts in everything and so when something becomes hard it becomes an even higher hurdle because you have to ask yourself about value is the value there so put put myself back in back in the shoes as an operational cio for a minute is the value there for me to have my team that is going to focus on this get tuned up and understand Kubernetes at the level they need to across the organization for all of those different applications that might take advantage of it. And I don't, I, that's a hard sell for me, I, especially, I guess my take on that. especially when you think about it in the context of everything else that the enterprise has to do these days. I, I agree 100% with you, Tim, that Kubernetes is hard. And I, I would add to that, uh, to, to add my answer to your question as to why, uh, why enterprises are, are not like, managing that they're on Kubernetes is that the talent pool is very small. I, I, as a mm. Kubernetes engineer myself, this is a seller's market. Uh, and a, a lot of it is is because we are in in the very early stages of, of adoption. So the the number of people who've used Kubernetes even for more than a year is small. Yeah. Three years ago, Kubernetes was an emerging technology. It, it was, and, and it's just over again over this past year, year and a half. It, literally just during the pandemic that it became widespread adoption. Well, I would, and Rich, I see your hand up, but I just want to maybe offer a quick response to that, which is, I don't know that the pool is necessarily going to be as big as what people think it will become over time. I think if anything, the pool is getting smaller to the point that. Sorry, the pool of what, Tim? The pool of users demand specifically for a technology like Kubernetes. It'll be Kubernetes today, it'll be something else tomorrow. I think the number of people that will be leveraging something as, I don't know what the right word there is, whether it's sophisticated or complicated um, is, 
I think that's actually shrinking. It's going to shrink even further over time. We're already seeing it shrink. Um, You know, if you just look at how dev teams are operating within enterprises, the exception here is, of course, web scale, where you have you have the scale and the organizational fortitude to be able to um, put focus into a particular architecture. But for the average, you know, Fortune 500 enterprise, I just I don't see it. I, I agree. Oh, so, sorry, uh, John and Rich, you guys had your hand up first. Well, Rich had his up. Yeah, the only yeah the 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 point that I wanted to bring up here is the kind of maturity of the technology and Kubernetes is a and very important and very useful, but taking it on. And you ask why all the different variations and all the the different flavors. There is so much additional tooling that has to be that has to accompany one's use of Kubernetes. That it's like you know I I liken it to kind of be sitting there in an operational mode using Kubernetes and having this kind of swarm of insects it's, a, it's like a small a small cloud of different tools that have to be made use of in order to do specifically what i need to do with kubernetes where i'm deploying it how i'm how i'm how i'm using it and it's a maturity issue what i believe is likely to happen is something not unlike what we're seeing with kafka where you've got an open source, generally, you know, heavily adopted. It is complex, uh, or it can be complex, but it has gotten to the point where it is mainstream. It's there's a kind of a standard set that you you tend to use. Uh, there are sophisticated users of, of Kafka, and they can tune it and make it you know, dance and sing exactly the way they want it. And you have a well-supported, limited number of commercial service-oriented vendors of Kafka. And then that has, I would say, the, you know, Confluence uh, as an example is is the way in which you move from an open open source community into a very successful uh, commercialization, both on the service side and on the uh, package software, licensed software. So, um, I I think it's a maturity issue. I think it's a it's a skills issue, but packaging it up for a um, Packaging it up for operations is what it comes down to. And I don't think we're there yet with uh, um, Kubernetes. I, I have no idea who goes next. I'm, I'm going to make a note of what I was thinking. Joanne. <laughs> and Jill, before I think Joanne's next. Um, I would tend to agree that, first of all, you have a small population. Maturity and risk are the two keywords here. Risk being the first, 
I have yet to see any of our client base, large enterprise, very large enterprise, actually taking it out of the confined lab. We're using it for this. We'll see how it goes. If it's a throwaway, it's a throwaway, no problem. But we're not moving for at least a year, a full calendar year, to start onboarding more and more devs or to look at you know, other tools. And Rich, you made a very salient point, which is all the other stuff you have to have around it. It's like every conversation that I have is Kubernetes and. And then the list. And then the list. And uh, where's the SaaS provider that's going to give me the Kubernetes and. And why, mm-hmm. you know, like there there are still, you know, um, a group of CIOs out there that are, let's say, in the 50 plus age range who remember early days of Linux before Red Hat. <laughs> And they liken it exactly to that. Yeah, okay, me too. Um, no hashtag. Um, that being said, they're already anticipating the next iteration of some of the core devs that are going to come from the Kubernetes camp to do the next thing. So that's why they on their on their game plan, it's more than a year away. What are you cracking up about? I I I the the idea that the innovative devs are are basically going to get bored and move on to the next cool thing and Don't baking that always? into your business strategy. No, I love it. I, it's it's to me that's the it that just that being part of our technology curve is um I, it just it's a what it's, know, I, it's I like acknowledging it as a phenomenon. Well, maybe it's a Canadian thing. Maybe it's a European thing. I don't know that I've heard a lot of it coming out of the U.S., but we, you know, for the forward thinking CIOs and CTOs that I talk to, it's like, and next is part of their roadmap with virtually every tool, because some of them have really, and I don't want to segue into another conversation, but just to drop the anecdote, as I've heard before, we were early adopters in digital transformation or industry four. We're now five years in and having to retool because our challengers and our competitors were late adopters and they're they're getting the benefit of the more mature technology. So now we have to go back and sort of semi reinvent the wheel. And they're not doing that across the board anymore. You know, I hear Kafka on a daily basis. I hear Kubernetes on a daily basis. And I'm waiting for the other shoe to fall. But there is a true shortage in the skills. And so if they're getting one person, one brave young developer coming up and going, oh, I really want to do X, they're sort of like, yeah, okay, but we're keeping it, you know, in this particular frame of reference for this particular set of applications and no more. If you can prove your proof of concept at a reasonable cost in a short period of time, okay, we'll look at the next one. But they're definitely phase gating all of that approach. But yeah, no, for the roadmap and the strategy and next comma is part of the game plan. Klaus, your turn. All right. Um, <laughs> so two things. What one is the one is a response to to, to you guys' previous statement that about enterprises waiting. Um, 
some enterprises may, may be waiting, but not all. And, and again, like this, this comes from personal experience, but uh, as someone who has a, a LinkedIn profile that where tuning is is there predominantly uh, featured, I get a lot of requests of, of, about, hey, we want to we want to start putting Kubernetes in production. We need the talent. It, it's yeah. it's the same story, which with, with different boards repeated over and over. Having said that, I have a controversial take on Kubernetes, and that's a bit of a response to also on your, your other statement that, that Kubernetes might go away. I don't think it will, or at least not as quickly as we mm. think it, it will, because I I don't think that we that Kubernetes should be looked at as a technology stack. Kubernetes should be looked at as a methodology. It it is a platform that encourages a particular view on how its components should interact, mm-hmm. uh, and it facilitates that interaction tremendously over what was available before. You can switch out the platform, put put in something else in in, in there instead of the Kubernetes runtime. But the methodology will stick around. And that's the end of my take. Well, with all due respect, I think of the group, a number of us would probably say, and we could liken that to X. Rails. <laughs> yeah. No, had huge yeah, impact I mean, in how we and how we build how we build applications, even though it's not yeah. commonly used. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and exactly, just like like Rails as a technology went is basically went the way of the dodo. The methodology that Rails introduced has stuck around. In, interestingly, I, I mean, Rails Rails is you know very it's it's. There, it's. I mean, this is a challenge. Like right? any of these things with the and next doesn't mean that operationally the deployments of that technology go away or can be ignored. Uh, it's one of the big challenges with this is the the tail on technology adoption is going to persist even after um, it's not cool um, because the the inertia on getting something in there. I mean, it's like the Python two migration. They you know they changed it. They, they changed enough in Python three that we now have actually two languages, and and supporting both is is you know we're, it's going to be very hard to make it go away. Um, actually, and that's sometimes I think one of the challenges here is that we introduce stuff. Um, I'm going to hold the floor for a second. One of the things that that troubled me about OpenStack, in violation of the things that we've just been discussing, was that OpenStack had a tendency to say. The spec is the API that we have shipped in this release without having a lot of guards for is the spec right? And so what would happen is, is that the, the developers would change the spec because a release would come out and they'd fix something without worrying too much about the fact that the a previous commitment as the spec was, was in, in the field. Um, and I know that that during the hardening time that caused a lot of a lot of uh, gyrations through the through the system. Um, so uh, yeah, I these things are here. 
Um, I agree that Kates is a, is a methodology. I actually suspect it's going to be the engine of something, you know, easier to use or better or something on top of it. But I'm, I actually, in some ways, think the open source licensing gets in the way of that. Not a fully formed thought yet. Um, because if I want, so actually, let me, let me play this out. I'm a little off. I'm a little, I'm pulling us into a slightly different topic area, but it, maybe it's interesting based on the looks I'm getting from people. Red Hat builds OpenShift on top of Kubernetes. And OpenShift is really a product. It's a, it's really a single vendor product. It's, it's marginally open source. Kubernetes is the engine behind OpenShift. It's actually an open, open source platform behind the scenes. But from a Red Hat user's perspective, or at least the way Red Hat wants it to be, your interface is OpenShift, the product, OpenShift. It's not, um, and I mean, VMware's doing the same thing with Tanzu. I'm not trying to pick on Red Hat specifically, but they've been very methodical here about the, the customer interface for Kubernetes is OpenShift. OpenShift is Red Hat. And therefore, Kubernetes is really an invisible engine from that, that behind the scenes. Um, and they could conceivably swap out the engine to something else if your interface is OpenShift. Um, and so I, I, and I'm now I'm getting no's. I, I don't, um, oh, Don's talking about something else. All right. Um, I, I guess the, yeah. hey, Rob, I guess the, the, the part that I kind of get tripped up on and maybe why at least why you're getting blank stares for me is I, I don't know. I don't think it matters as much as it used to. And that's kind of where I was, where I was going, Hmm. you know, my earlier comment is, you know, I don't think it is the, the driver, the way it, it used to be. I think it, the, the storyline has flipped in that. What do we need to be doing from a business standpoint and what technologies or how can we get it done? And whether it's open source or not, I, I don't necessarily have as much uh, fever around that or passion like I used to. Now, I will say there are still some oh, that, that are definitely passionate. And going back to the, the early Linux days and the, the religious wars around it, I mean, Everyone picked a camp back then. Everyone picked a camp and that was your your beachhead that you stood and you picked up a weapon and you fought for that particular version of Linux and everyone else to hell, you know, and that's the that's the way it was. And I thought it was so funny to to see the folks, you know, coming up with some of the open source um, conversations in the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, these are folks, they, and my argument was, they weren't even working back in the nineties, let alone they may might not have been born yet, but um, you know, so that those, those lessons have been lost, but getting back on point, I really question whether, whether the line of thinking is as relevant as it once was. And if it might not behoove us to, to think about how that shifts. I mean, for me, it's definitely shifted. Like I could, I could care less about the technology. I mean, like Tanzu is a great example. I still don't know to this day what the real value of Tanzu is for a customer. I mean, there's, there are some real core questions around that. 
And so, um, and that's something that, that I'm finding is, is being shared by others. So I, maybe if we, you know, one thing we could do is flip the narrative and say, okay, so why are we having this conversation in the first place? And then what are the best ways to, to take it from there? But maybe I'm the only one that's. No, this is, you're, you're actually, this is where I, my, you're, you're at my starting question to me. It's like, do we, do we care about licenses anymore? Right. Or do we care more about utility? What Rich was asking, and I think it's really important, right? Packaging something to make it operable is, is really should be the question. It's like, all right, does it solve my business needs? Does it address the integration I have? Is it part of my work streams? And is it operable? And then if it's not operable, then you're going to, you're saying, all right, I'll let a SaaS operate it for me. And that has its own supply chain risks and you need to evaluate that. And one of the things I feel like the open source, um, a lot of the open source products did was they never worried about operability. From that that perspective, I think actually it's it's interesting to hear Kubernetes when we talk about it all the time. It's like it's complex, it's hard to use, right? The operability of that platform uh, is, I I mean I I well think of it this way, Rob. If the value were there, I'd be more interested in in investing in the knowledge and expertise to be able to wrap my arms around it. The thing that's weird to me is I, I, and th there's there's competitors to Kubernetes like Nomad um, that are incredibly operable, right? Even Docker Swarm, even though I'm not going to count them in the surviving list at the moment, but but they're very operable, um, you know. And, and Fargate or you know whatever the service the service options we have are, and but that hasn't put a damper on the Kubernetes pieces in any way, shape, or form. Um, and to your point about VMware, their messaging for Kanzu is, well, but it's Kubernetes. Not, not, they're not really that much around all the reasons why it should, you would use it, except that it's Kubernetes. Um, that, that's I mean, there are other things. Yeah. Well, okay, that, that's perhaps because in a, despite their not so great operability, there's sufficient mm -hmm. SaaS providers that give it to you as a platform, which enables you to have, to some degree, um, workload portability. Like if you if you if you run your workload on 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 AWS on, on EKS, you have ninety percent portability to AKS to GKE to DigitalOcean to IBM. There's there's stuff at the edge that you're gonna need to change like how to configure your DNS or how to interact with your load balancer. But 90%, you're already there, which significantly reduces the risk of running on that platform versus Nomad, for example. And that, you, well, you just, and this is why the complexity is, is beneficial, right? And I, because I, I mean, I'm a firm believer in beneficial complexity. And the, what you just described is the argument that makes Kubernetes interesting from that perspective, it creates a degree, and this is where open source is actually valuable. It creates a degree of supply chain protection by using a commodity 
generally available service or service interface. Uh, we've come so full circle to the back to the discussion of supply chain. Wow, it's amazing to me how much supply chain keeps coming back into these conversations. But it makes sense. If you are depending on software to run your business, that is a supply chain decision. And understanding how it's licensed is a part of it, but not the biggest. It really is how it's going to be maintained and sustained. That's always been the real question behind any of the licensing conversations. And a key one in, in factoring in how these things go. We have a long schedule of topics that touch on this and come back. So please join us. Get your voice included in these discussions. Uh, you can find out more at the2030.cloud. See you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.